132. Certainly hope that you had a good day today. I promise I won't talk about the wind. You've probably heard enough about it. So that's it. I'm not going to say it. No, we had a great day. We did some visiting and got a chance to have some great conversations with the brethren today, and we enjoyed that very much. And again, I hope you had a good day. If you're visiting with us today, tonight, thank you for coming, and come back when you can. We'd love to have you. Tonight we're going to talk about restoring New, Test- New Testament. I'm going to get this out here in a minute. Restoring New Testament Christianity. That's going to be the subject of what we talk about tonight. Restoring New Testament Christianity. And where does that come from? Where does the idea come from that you even have to do that? Well, way back there in 2 Timothy. Here's what Paul said. Preach the Word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. The Apostle Paul knew that there was going to be a time when this would happen. The Apostle Paul knew that there would be a time when people would turn their ears away from the truth, and they would latch on to something else. So, we're going to talk about the idea of restoring New Testament Christianity. And to be a restoration, there must be first a falling away. We know about that. We know that that has happened. We know that Paul said it was going to happen, and we know it did happen. Here's what he said now. Let's let's examine this some more. There's going to be a time when they will not endure sound doctrine. So they're going to turn to a doctrine that's not sound. It's not true. It's not consistent with the Bible. What are they going to follow after? They're going to follow after the things that they lust after in their own hearts. That's what Paul says. There's going to be a time when they do that. And they're going to heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They're going to to be taught what they want to hear. They're going to be taught the things that, that are convenient for them and what they want to hear, not what the truth might be. So let's talk about this falling away. In 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 3, the Bible teaches us, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. What do you think that means? To have your conscience seared with a hot iron. That meant it didn't bother them anymore. It meant quite just that. That it didn't bother them anymore that they were doing all of these things. That they had departed from the faith. And had heeded to themselves all of these different things that he, he told, talked to us about. There would be a departure from the faith. After the New Testament close that that was our account up until that time and then after that historically we saw that that happened that they would give in to evil allurements 
that they would follow the doctrine of devils. And their conscience would be seared with that hot iron. It just wouldn't bother. So Paul, we've been reading about Paul and what he had to say about that. Here he warns the elders. He gives them a warning. Let's examine this. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost have made you overseers to feed the church which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, and this is what Paul says, I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. He's talking about the flock, but he's talking about the church. He's talking about those wolves, and he's talking about the people that would come in and tear the church apart. How would they do that? Doctrines of devils? Teaching lies? Hypocrisy? For I know this, that after my departing, he's talking about his death, those grievous wolves would enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, of your own selves shall men arise. What's he talking about there? He says, from your own number, men are going to arise. They're going to arise. People of your own number are going to step forward. What are they going to do? Speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone, everyone night and day with tears. Paul was grieving about this. He knew this was going to happen. He's an inspired writer of the New Testament. He knew these things. He knew that these things would be before them and they'd be struggling with them and they'd be fighting with them. So he warns them that people will come up among them, among their own selves, to do these things. Take heed. Pay attention, he says. For I know this. And their intent was to draw Christians away from the faith. So history tells us what happened to the New Testament church. All of this stuff he was talking about was, was going to come and history tells us. We can look back on history and we know that it did. You know, in about 325 years after Paul wrote these things, religious services began to be performed in Latin in a language that, they, they didn't, that people didn't understand. And that's just contrary to what Paul's instruction was for us in 1 Corinthians 14 that we should know what's being said. If you look back in 1 Corinthians 14, you're going to learn that Paul said if there is somebody that's speaking in an unknown tongue to have an interpreter so that people will know what's being taught, know what's being said. They can measure that and find out if it was the truth. Could they measure the truth if it was in an unknown tongue? Well, no. That's the reason Paul told the church at Corinth. Don't let that happen. In 1,200 or plus years, we look in history, and it tells us that baptism has been substituted in some cases for a sprinkling. Now the Scripture tells us what baptism is. It is a burial. Baptism is a burial. We could have all kinds of examples of that. We, we've talked about the Ethiopian eunuch this week. We talked about how that they're riding along in the chariot and the eunuch wants to be baptized and the Scripture says that 
they commanded the chariot to be still, and he went down in the water, both he and Philip. They both went into the water and he baptized him. Now, there's been a lot of great teaching throughout the brotherhood on baptism, and I'm not going to dwell on this for a long time except to tell you that baptism is a burial, and if you're going to get buried, you're going to be lowered into the water. Into that watery grave of baptism to rise and walk in newness of life. Yet, 1,200 years after all of this stuff is written, we begin to see in history, we begin to see people being sprinkled for what they call baptism. Was that an immersion? No. Was it a burial? No. Was it accepted by those people in that day? Well, a lot of them did. Even though it was contrary to the teaching of God. And by the 16th century, the church was not even recognizable back to the, what we see in the New Testament. The church was appointing kings. The church was taxing people. The church was selling indulgences. Now, I'm not going to expound on indulgences other than to say that this was money that could be paid to the church so that sin could be committed with the blessing of the church. Is that consistent with the New Testament? No. Do you think that the church had fallen away? Yes. And there were many other things that had been done and all of them, and many of them were foreign to the Scriptures. What happened? What happened? Well, I can tell you what happened. Exactly what Paul said. Exactly what he said here in Acts 20. That there was people that rose up among themselves and started all of these things that were contrary to the Scriptures. There had been a falling away. Here's what happened. That's what history shows us. And at the very end there, just like I said before, the church becomes, a, becomes very difficult to recognize from the biblical model. Wasn't this a shame to think about this? How that just in that many years they could get completely away from the truth? It happened. Paul told them. But then, as time goes on, a change begins to happen again. A change begins to happen. And it's called a Reformation. In the 1500s, there's a guy named Martin Luther that protested the selling of indulgences. And this era of time, and there was a lot of other things going on there, we're not going to spend a lot of time on that. But to say that they begin to try to reform the church. Now that's quite different than restoring the church, isn't it? A reformation is taking something and trying to change it into something else. Change it back into something else. A restoration is a starting over. Now, about 1800, a restoration effort began in America. This was a restoring of the church. Not trying to change what was there back to something it was. This is, we're going to just start over, guys. And that's what happened in the 1800s. Religious men and denominations began to advocate the idea of Scriptures only. Just the Scriptures. Not the opinions. Not the direction of the leaders. 
not what a bunch of guys get together and decide, but we're going to go back to the Scriptures, and that began in about the 1800s. And many of those guys, when they did that, were excommunicated. They were kicked out of their groups. They were saying, let's start over. Let's get back to the New Testament. Let's do this the right way. And they were shown the door. No, you get out of here. Wasn't popular, was it? And several men were, were active in this movement. We're not going to spend time on these guys either, but I did want to show you these names because if you look at some of the historical documentation of the restoration of the church, you're going to find these guys. James O'Kelly, Abner Jones, Barton Stone, Walter Scott, Alexander Campbell. That one kind of rings more of a bell a lot of times than, than the others. Because they advocated a scripture-only situation. Alexander, Alexander Campbell was called, in a quote here, an early leader in the second great awakening of the religious movement that has been referred to as the Restoration. So in the Restoration movement, probably the most identifiable guy there is going to be him. Alexander Campbell. So we see a falling away. We see a protest of the religious falling away. And we see an effort to restore the church that we see in the first century. An effort to restore or find something that was lost. If you're going to find something that's lost, you're going to go try to go back to where you lost it. Isn't that right? I mean, that's logic there. I mean... You know, it seems like we're always looking for something in our house. And what's the big question? Well, where do you remember seeing it last? Where did you see that last? So we're looking for the TV remote or something. I don't know. It's nothing that doesn't always turn up in our house. But in this case, if they were going to restore the New Testament church and bring it back to, to, to what it was back in the first century, then where do they need to look? Well, they need to go back to the first century. That's where they saw it last. That's where it turned up. So let's talk about the search. Where does it start? Where did you see it last? The New Testament Scripture. The New Testament Scripture. That's where we saw it last. So that's what we need to go back to. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for what? For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God or mankind that follow God may be perfect. That's complete. Thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So these guys that, that we named on that list of guys, and Alexander Campbell was, was among those, they began to use the Scripture to restore the church back to the New Testament model that we see. The first century church that we see. And what did they do? They used those things. Were they perfect at it? Probably not. Are we always going to be perfect at it? We probably won't be, but we strive to be. We study to show ourselves approved unto God. It's God's Word. 
The Bible that we have and that we guide ourselves with is our doctrine. It corrects our life. It instructs us. So, it's going to be the Word that will bring us back to where we saw it in the New Testament. A total and correct restoration will only be accomplished when the New Testament church is identified in the Scripture and restored to that standard. It's going to be that standard that brings us back to that restoration. So Jesus is very clear about what happens when we're following men. Here He says in Matthew 15 and 9, But in vain they do worship Me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Now that was a lot of that going on back there. The Pharisees were just terrible about that. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day back in then, and they came up with all kinds of stuff that people should do. And it was above and beyond and went a lot further than the law. And Jesus didn't like it then, He doesn't like it now. What He wants is us to go by the Word of God. That's the only reliable thing anyway, isn't it? I mean, I guess you could think so this and think so that, but what happens when we get out of line of God's Word? Well, we've got to go back to God's Word. In vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus condemned that. He said that's not the way to do that. That's not the biblical standard. We understand that the biblical standard is to restore the church. That's how we apply the Scripture. How do we apply the Scripture to restore the church? Well, here it is. We look to the things that are taught to us in Scripture, the examples that we have in Scripture. A lot of the things that we do are because of the example that we see in Scripture. Philippians 4, 9. Those things, here's what Paul says, those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. And the God of peace shall be with you. Paul says, when you see us do some things here, he's an inspired writer of the New Testament. When you see the way we do things, you do them. You do those things the same way. And what's going to happen? He says the God of peace will be with you. That's going to be the way to do them. That's going to be the way to, to accomplish this and be pleasing to God. So, we look at a few of these things. What do they call each other? Well, they call each other Christians. And we see that from Acts 11 and 26. You know, that's a simple thing, isn't it, to us? To us, we think, well, that's, that's a simple concept. I, I don't even know why we'd have to think about this. A lot of people struggle with this. When they had found him, he brought him into Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. They weren't identified with the Apostle Paul. They weren't identified with Peter. Those are great men of the Bible. We appreciate them and love to read about them and learn from them, but we don't identify with them in, in name. We identify with Christ. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Let's think about how they were taught. We have examples. We go back and restore the New Testament church back to its original way of doing things, we need to talk about the way they were taught. How were they taught in the New Testament? In that early church, how did they teach each other? 
1 Corinthians 14 and 23, Paul tells the church at Corinth here, he instructs him on a lot of things. He's talking to church members here. If therefore the whole church become together into one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will not they say that you're a man? We see that the church was taught in a together arrangement. That church restored would be taught that way. And who taught them? And when? And when were they not taught? Well, first let's talk about men and women. Privately teaching each other. So we see that there's public teaching, there's private teaching. Here in Acts 18, verse 24 through 26, the Bible says, And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. Now he's a great preacher. He's described by the Scriptures as being eloquent. So he comes to Ephesus and he begins to instruct people, but he only knows the baptism of John. And we talked about this the other night. Whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took unto him, took him unto them, and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. So we see this husband and wife team that takes the preacher off to the side and talks with him about what he just said and teaches him. So we see that they can do that. We see that they can do that in a private setting. When it gets to the public assembly, it's men only. 1 Corinthians 14 and 34. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. Paul goes on and gives some more explanation about that. and He says if, if the women have a question, let them ask them at home. Does that literally mean at home? Excuse me. Is that the only place that a woman can ask a question? Is it home? She can't ask on the way, in the car on the way back from church? Well, no, that's not what it means. It means not in a public assembly. And that's what was happening here. That there had been some of that, and Paul was giving correction to that, and he was saying for the women to remain silent in the, in the assembly. So we see the teachers, the men in the public assembly could teach and did teach. If we were to look at Acts 13, we'd see that they had multiple teachers. Men teaching publicly. In Ephesians 5 and 19, we see how they sang. How did they sing? Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That's how they praised God through song, was from their heart. From the mouths they, they sang those, those songs. They prayed together. Acts 20 and 36. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. There wasn't one person that prayed and everybody maybe in a foreign tongue that couldn't be understood. One person prayed, but it was with them all. And that's what we did tonight. We had our prayer tonight. And as one man led that prayer, we prayed with him. 
and we all prayed together. We made our petitions made being made made not, made our petitions known to God. But it wasn't one person. It wasn't praying on the behalf of someone else. It wasn't praying in the absence of someone and and that being in their stead. The New Testament model is this, that we prayed with them all. How about their contribution? Now, look at 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. You know, Paul says, the things that you see me do, do those. Well, this is a great example of this right here. This is not one of those, thou shall do this. But we see what the early church did about their collection. And we look at that and we can get an example of that and we can get a pattern for that and if we're restoring the New Testament church, we can apply this right here to how we're going to give. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to, uh, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. So he'd already told others this. And he says, do this to you. And we look on that and we see, well, that applies to us too. And upon the first day of the week, let one of you lay by him in store, as God has prospered him. This is not a tax. This is not a percentage. This is not a requirement. This is not a pledge. This is giving from your heart as God has prospered you. That there be no gatherings when I come. He gave a reason for why, why he wanted to do it. That it's more efficient. We see that pattern in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 9 and 7, the Bible says here, Every man according as he purpose in his heart, so let him give. Not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth, loveth a cheerful giver. That's what God wants you to do. He wants me to do. He wants you to give with a cheerful heart as you've been prospered, as you purpose in your heart, as you plan in your heart. Because He wants us to be cheerful givers. What about their lifestyle? If we were going to have a, a glimpse back at the lifestyle and what's advocated in the first century, 1 Peter 1 and 15. But as... He which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. It's a conversation. And again, conversation means lifestyle. Our lifestyle should be holy. That's what God's people should do. That's what God wants us to do. That's what the New Testament church should have is people who are living holy lives. Is that a perfect life? Well, no, we can't be perfect. But we should strive for that. Try to be the best we can do in our lifestyle, to represent the church in, the, in that model. How about how they treated each other? If we're going to restore the New Testament church and, and teach each other how to treat each other, if we're going to teach how to behave with each other, we have to consider the Scripture here in Romans 12 and 10. Paul says, Be kindly affectionate one to another, with brotherly love and honor preferring one another. What about remembering Jesus Christ? This has been a big subject of discussion many times. 
about how are we going to honor Jesus Christ? Well, we're going to have communion. When are we going to do that? How are we going to do that? Who's going to do that? Who can do that? Who's going to receive it? Who's going to give it? All of these things. New Testament church, it was very definite when that happened and how it happened. But a lot less restrictive sometimes than we see in our society. This is how they honored and remembered Jesus. Again, another example that we look in the Scriptures and see. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow and continue his speech until midnight. That's kind of a benign sort of statement, isn't it? You know, and you can kind of read through that maybe sometime. But what does it tell us? It says, upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. Somebody might say, well, now, you know, that don't say every first week, first day, does it? It doesn't say every first day of the week. It doesn't say the word every in there. You know, you go back to the Ten Commandments. Keep the Sabbath holy. Does that say every? Does it say keep every Sabbath holy? No, it doesn't. If I tell you you're going to get paid on Friday, if you tell me, hey, I'm starting this new job, when's payday? Friday. <coughs> really? Every Friday? Well, sure. That's what it means. It's a way we communicate with one another. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. When we restore that New Testament church, we're going to remember how and, and how often we do honor Christ. And you know there's going to be problems. And sometimes we design our own plans for how we solve those problems. But if we look in the New Testament church on how they solve their problems, their problems one with another, let's look at how they wanted, how God wanted them to solve their problems. We see people come up with this stuff on their own all the time. Sometimes we don't see this. Matthew 18 and 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone, and he shall hear thee. Thou, and if, the, and if, if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. If somebody wrongs you, if somebody wrongs me, then we need to go and talk with them about that. We don't need to talk to everybody else about that. We don't need to get anybody fired up about that except herself, and that's just to go and talk to them and not mad and meekness. If somebody's overtaken in the fault, the Bible says we restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. So in meekness we do, if we've been trespassed against, we should go to that brother or sister and talk with them about that and try to settle it that way. That's the way God wants us to settle our differences. When we restore that New Testament church, it's going to be full of people. When you get, things, when you get places full of people, what do they do? From time to time, they don't get along. Excuse me. That's what we're supposed to do. So we see how the early church worshiped God and how they lived for God and how they did things and how they resolved things, how they came to get past their problems. And we should strive to be approved by God.
2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God. That means to strive. Strive. And you, you strive when you study, no doubt. Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We need to know the truth. The truth is what's going to make us free. Free from sin. And free from spiritual death. We need to study. We need to strive. And not be workmen that are ashamed, but workmen that are proud to do God's will. To do the things that God would have us to do to live our lives according to that New Testament example. So what's the point? Why the importance? Why is such importance being put on restoring the New Testament church? Because we love God. We love Jesus Christ and His commandments. John 14 and 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's how we, we can love Christ, is by keeping His commandments, doing His will, restoring that New Testament church and then striving to serve Him every day. And we should want to do that. The will of the Father, not our, not our own. Here in John 5 and 30, Jesus says, Here I can of mine own self do nothing, as I bear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. And that's what Jesus said. The Bible tells us that we need to have that mind of Christ. We're going to take on the mind of Christ and we're going to want to serve God and do His will. Do the things He would like us to do. That He wants us to do. And that should be the only motivation we need, really. Jesus wants His church to be together. When I talk about church, I'm talking about the overall worldwide church. He wants that to be one. He taught us that. John 10 and 16, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I, also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold, one shepherd. It's the will of Christ that we be one. How do we unify ourselves as one? Well, it's only going to be through the Scriptures. Because it's the only thing we can depend on. It's not man's will. It's not man's design. It's not some council or some group of people or anything else's design. It's God's design. And there shall be one fold. What is a fold? Well, it's a body. And, and it's the body of Christ. It's the church. Paul warns the church at Corinth here in 1 Corinthians 1 because what are they doing? It's not long after they start off that they start that dividing business and identifying here and there and with other people and that type of thing. Here in verse 10 it says, Now I beseech you, brethren. That's who he's talking to. He's talking to the brethren. He's not talking to the world. He's talking to church members. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. For it, had been, it, for it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. So that's what Paul's, Paul is talking about. He's talking to these church members. He said, you know, 
I've heard about this and y'all got some contentions. There's contentions among you. Now this I say that every one of, that every one of you saith, saith, I am of Paul, I am of Paulus, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. The question, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius. Lest any should say that I had baptized in my own name. Now I don't know why people do that. I don't know why it's such a human nature sort of thing to want to identify with people and say, I'm of this guy and I'm of that guy and I'm of this group and I'm of that group. The only group that we need to be identified with are Christians. The only one that we need to identify with is Christ. Because Jesus does not want division. He wants us to be together. He wants us to be one fold, one shepherd. That's pleasing to Him. And it should be pleasing to us. You know, a restoration of the Lord's church can be accomplished. It can be done. And some people say, well, I don't know about all that. Well, yes, it can. Philippians 4 and 13 the Bible says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. It can be done. If it's the will of the people to follow God's plan and get in that Bible and find out what that plan is, it can be done. We must go back to God's plan because it is the will of God. So as we consider this prospect of restoring the New Testament church, let's consider the words of Paul again here to the Christians at Ephesus. Therefore, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy in the vocation wherein you are called, with all lowliness and meekness and longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who above all, and through it all, and in you all. Do you think God wants us to have divisions among us? No. We need to be about God's work of restoring the New Testament church. We need to contend for that. That must be our strive. We must strive to restore that New Testament church. So the question tonight, finally, have you been added to that church? You know, in Acts, the second chapter, it talked about the people that were added to the, to the church such as should be saved. So people that are added to the church are saved. We learned that from in Acts 2. Now, we use, loosely, we use terms like people join the church and things like that, but the Scripture says that we're added to the church. How are we added to the church? When we obey the gospel. When we've heard and believed that gospel. When we repented of our sins and made that confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and then we're buried with Him in the watery grave of baptism down into that water and rise to walk in newness of life. That's how we're added to that church. That New Testament church. The church that fell away but was restored. I want to encourage you to do that tonight. If you haven't done that, if you hadn't made that decision to follow Christ and obey Him in baptism and walk the walk of a Christian, 
I want you to think about that. We're going to offer an invitation here, invitation song here, and we're going to ask you, if you've not done that, you need to do that. If you've walked away or fallen away and you're ready to come back, we're ready to help you in, in that walk as well. I want to thank you for your attention tonight. If the church can be of assistance to you, we'd ask that you'd come forward as we sing the song that's been selected. Have a